Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This one we've already done, this is number four. Augustine himself testifies that the majority of the church believed in apocatastasis and universal salvation in his retractions in which he's retracting his statement and explaining it, he changes his reading of 1 Timothy 2.4. You know, before he had, when uh, God wants all humans to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, he said, well, this is apocatastasis, this is universal salvation. And after the conflict with Pelagius, Augustine changed his universal drift or universalistic understanding taking all humans to mean not all humans, but only those predestined. And he holds, you know, the passage in uh, Romans 11, where it talks about the fullness that all, you know, all the Gentiles, he said, well, that's just to the predestined. Oh, I, I just had a quick question, Paul. Is your, I, I really, I really am enjoying this, like, sort of top 10. Is this your, are you taking this from? I'm, I'm not doing Bostock yet. Okay. Yeah. No. I, I love. I mean, it's it's really interesting to me that you're that all this is being built. That the number one was apocalypticus. You know that that departure. I mean, I guess just for me because that's an interest of mine. But that I think that that fundamental, I guess, view of God, right, of of His goodness, of His love, of His saving intention, of His His relationship, right, with of unity with all creatures and all this stuff. I, I guess. Um, to put that kind of at the bottom of the pyramid is, is quite the, I think that's an insightful move. Maybe I've, missed, maybe I've missed, maybe I've like sort of underestimated the power of, of that, that initial sort of theological insight. I think it's a tragedy. I think this is the tragedy. And I think that so much is, revolves around apocatastasis that we lose in the West. I don't think Bostock mentions apocatastasis. His article is good, but and everything I've said is actually, I think, an unfolding yeah. so far of the rejection of apocatastasis. Number five, and this one is kind of vague, but I, I think it's a, it's a key one. The Logos is the incarnate Christ for origin. That's what we're getting, you know, in people like Rowan Williams. There is a return to origin. And in that return to origin, they then are talking about they're doing away with the notion of a pre-incarnate Christ. The way that Augustine is talking about the logos is in terms of abstractions. And he's going to talk about language. You know, I don't know if you looked at his stuff on, you know, the picture of an, uh, a private language or an innate language. He describes, you know, when I was born, I had this private language. He has this sense that language per se is the word of God. And this is going to be picked up in Anselm again, quite brilliantly in his ontological argument. It's really just an argument that Descartes is repeating in which there is a reification of language. Language contains the truth. The way that Anselm does this, he just says, well, the, the word, that's just words, right? But how many words are there? Well, there's only one word, right? 
There's only a singular word. How do we come to this singular word within ourselves? Enter into the door of your mind. Open it and, you know, go into that room and close the door and think the greatest thought that can be thought. This is an ontological argument. And the way he's bringing it at the end of the ontological argument, you are brought to total silence because you've entered the place of language. And this place of the word, he's equating it with Christ. Hmm. The reification of language is the logos, is Jesus. I believe that's there in Augustine. In yes. Augustine's Platonism and his, his, in other words, they're both Platonic in this use of language. That's also the root of a natural theology, right? That is the root of natural theology. I think that's there throughout Greek philosophy. There is this reification of language. I mean, even what you just did right there with the Logos, again, what we were saying last week with Origen is his, he, he has such an incarnational theology. Well, once you make the move to abstract the Logos and the idea of the Logos, you, that's a significant departure right there, along with the other ones that you've mentioned. Because what Apocatastasis is, is ultimately about is the union of God with all of creation. And Augustine is just Platonic in this. And that's why everybody loves Plato. They say, well, you, you just do this with language. I don't know that you need Jesus. That's too far. But I really think that Augustine's embrace of Platonic philosophy it just pervades our theology. It's just everywhere. Well, in fairness, I, I don't think you need Jesus is crass, but it's in part what's going on, because if you have a natural theology and Jesus is a part of that, then you don't need the apocalyptic inbreaking so much as you do a recognition that his atonement or his presence with us is a reflection of something that came before, something that we can trace, something that we can identify within our human experience. That's it. Now, Jesus is just there naturally. And then you can expand that out. Plato was a proto-evangelist, you know. I just think this is abhorrent, but, you know, that, that's the minority opinion. When John the Baptist, was it Herod, had the birthday party and <clears throat> he served uh, John the Baptist's head was served on a platter. It seems like within a short time, Jesus sent his 12 disciples out to heal the sick, don't take any money, and drive out demons, raise the dead. Is my mind stretching, is going too far to say that's an example of theosis? The healing ministry of Jesus is a picture of the, the healing that Christ brings into our life. You are exactly right. And it transferred into his disciples. Yes, that's, uh, no, that's a wonderful observation. In other words, what we're going to lose is we're going to break up. What is Jesus doing? Well, he heals us. And his healing ministry is a, a picture of the healing that he brings in salvation. That's going to be emptied out of pictures of a legal understanding that he meets the demands of the law. In, in other words, Jesus isn't going to hold together very well for us. So I think you're exactly right that in the early church, this is Irenaeus, this is Origen, what they see Christ accomplishing in his healing ministry is extended in being caught up in, in other words, that's the healing that he brings to all of us. And it's also in the challenging of 
that Jesus made to Pilate, which is, in essence, a challenging of Cicero and all uh, human philosophy and all that you can draw from that, all that you can draw from the wisdom of the ages so far, including even the Old Testament. I think that's it, yeah. Apart from Christ. This is my understanding of the philosophical project. It always tends toward reification, dualism, and nihilism. Actually, demonstrating this in a philosophy class is a lot of fun because it just repeats itself again and again. The philosophy is always going to land on on this reification of language. This is Derrida, by the way. This is not, you know, this is Jacques Derrida. He just goes through the history of West, Western thought, but people say, oh, he's talking about modernity. No, I don't think Derrida was ever just simply talking about modernity. He, he himself objects to that understanding of his thought. He's just talking about the way people think. It will always perform the same thing. And he does go back to Plato and the pharmacon and talking about the idea of gaining presence through language. See, that's, what, that's really what we're talking about. When we talk about the cogito, do I have my self-presence within my thought? Am I present to myself? In other words, we're always aiming to gain presence, to, to, and in present substance, being. You know, that's literally what we're talking about. And in my simple-minded Christianity, I just believe that it's only in Christ that we have life and presence. It, uh, Jacques Derrida, I think, is one of the premier thinkers in a postmodern frame, and, and that's exactly what he's describing, is the history of of thought can be summed up in this pursuit of presence. Yeah. All right. Let me do an, uh, the denigration of the body may be obvious in, in uh, Augustine, his denigration of sex. You're all probably familiar with that. The original sin is that's got to have something to do with sex, right? Origin has a high valuation of the body. I mean, we could argue the details, but the point is the body is, is eternal. And there is only one that has no body, and that is the Father and the, the Holy Spirit. But otherwise, we're all embodied. And so Origen has a very high view of the body. Uh, and, and then the obvious one that I've already said, I don't need to repeat. I think Origen is anti-Platonic. I did that last week. I know that's not the majority opinion. But I think it's just there. He's just, and in, in that you could object and, and talk about places that he does seem to borrow. A, okay, I, you know, but nonetheless, I think overall it's anti-Platonic. And then the opposite, I think, is also true. And for some, that's also controversial, but I don't see any controversy. Augustine is a Platonist. I, I think that's definitive of what he's doing. He, he says as much. I did say in the retractions he regrets that, but I don't think we ever get uh, a picture of Augustinian thought. It is just a, uh, an extension. And obviously there would be places that he's, he's Christian and that being Christian, you can't simply be Platonic. How does this come out in his justification of the Constantinian merger? I'm not sure where this comes from, but his obvious justification of violence his in making a distinction between city of god and city of man and and assigning different roles there what are augustine's fundamental 
mistakes when it comes to that whole conversation about society and church. He's going to say it's better to kill the body and save the soul than to lose both soul and body. Therefore, it is better that we physically confront the heretics and then subsequent to Augustine, just war theory is going to be built upon the same idea. Once you get the Cartesian dualism, I mean the Augustinian dualism, then what you do to the body is secondary, as if you can separate out what you do to the body. Oh, I'm not hurting the person. I'm just killing his body. I mean, C.S. Lewis, I think, gives a terrible example of this. You know, he talks about he can picture a German soldier and a British soldier, you know, killing each other and rolling into heaven laughing. Mm. I think that we're a little bit more attached to our bodies. Mm. And of course, what's missing in all this, what's missing in Cartesianism and Augustinianism and in the understanding of language and thought, and this is, I, I think, brilliantly recovered through Ludwig Wittgenstein. And, and Wittgenstein, there's nothing complicated about what Wittgenstein is doing. He's just saying that language is a, an embodied activity. There's no such thing as language apart from bodies. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Contrary to what some Google engineers may claim. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> Greek philosophy claims otherwise. Greek yeah, philosophy yeah. claims that the logos is a principle and our words reflecting it is natural theology, basically. That's it, that it's built upon the intellect. It's built upon the notion that the intellect can be separated from the, the corporeal, the body. And Drew, to your point, I think this is the modern notion of artificial intelligence. The artificial intelligence is a possibility because intelligence is already artificial. In other words, it, it is a computer program in this understanding. I think that's just a lie. I don't. I, that's not the way language works. That's not the way that that we work. We are embodied creatures, and we don't escape embodiment, though we would like to. This is Plato. The body is the prison house of the soul, and Augustine is going to reflect that. And I think that does then open the door to to violence. Could we say? Uh, Chomsky sort of ties that the language and the body back together. Yes, yes, I think he does. So Chomsky's deep grammar, the idea of the black box, you know, he never, this transformational grammar. Chomsky, I don't know that Chomsky believes. Matt, you, Welch, again, you can probably tell us. I assume he's just an out-and-out -out atheist. I think but, so. But when it came to this, you know, he always tried to fit his theory of language into an evolutionary theory, but it really doesn't explain anything because it's really hard to talk about the evolution of language, especially in a Chomskyan method, because you have to have the grammar, you have to have the deep grammar built in. In other words, a child cannot learn language apart from the, that deep grammar. He just calls it a black box. And I remember in an interview with Newsweek, they said, well, how did it get that? He said, well, I guess God put it there. I mean, he is a Jew after all, right? Yeah. I, I think that's the only answer, even for Chomsky. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think he actually believes that, but, but that is where his theory leads you. I mean, maybe he does believe it. I don't know. We've gone to, through two, you know, with the modernism, there is a reification of language. 
And I think that's a way of characterizing postmodernism. There is an undoing of that a reification and a kind of return to an appreciation of embodiment and of the tie of language to em the embodied human condition. That is both Ludwig Wittgenstein, who is, even though he's from Austria, we, we put him with the British empiricists. I don't put him with the British empiricists, but anyway, uh, and that is the, the continental philosophy. That's really what, that, that's a key part of Lacanian theory. They're all talking about the role of language. And so we could illustrate this in philosophy, there's the reification of language, but I think this is also what's happening in what Freud sees happening in the human psyche. In other words, I don't think this is just a philosophical thing. I think this is actually the, the human that we would, literally, I think what we would do is displace the word of God with a human word, to put it in simplistic terms. That we would reify language, and that, ha that, is, that has the effect of, you don't need revelation. Uh, the biggie here, and this is Bostock, uh, he, he points out, the evil as originating with Satan or with man, that pertains to so many things. And he runs down, he runs that down real well. So maybe I don't need to repeat that one. And then we're on number nine. Bostock didn't say this, but I think it is there in what he's saying. That what the difference then between Augustinianism and Originism, or I would just say the New Testament, that in the New Testament, that what is being portrayed is the real world defeat of evil. That is, what is Christ doing on the cross? He's defeating evil. We're going to shift, not necessarily with Augustine, but I think Augustine sets us up for the shift to a forensic doctrine of salvation that Anselm will come up with. What do you mean by forensic? Sorry. Uh, legal. Uh, mm -hmm. He's going to explain everything as fulfilling God's just demands of the law. Why did Christ die? Because it, uh, God's righteousness requires it, and this is expressed in the law. And so this is Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction, which again is tied in. Uh, the, the, when we talk about this legal theory, understand this is also tied into his rational theory. The two are very much interconnected. Anselm is actually quite a genius. He, he ties all this together. And of course, Calvin just builds on this with that it's all just fulfilling the law. It's fulfilling God's just requirements. Uh, I think that has nothing to do with the New Testament picture of why Christ died. Is that the uh, Latin approach in uh, Gustav Allen? Gustav Allen is the one who comes up with the picture of um, Christus Victor. Yeah, yeah. And so Gustav Allen recognizes that, hey, we, we got off track with the legal theory, and, and that's not the New Testament. Uh, the last one here, he talks about a synergism. That is, Origen maintains a, the idea that God works synergistically with human free will. That's gone in Augustine. That to sum it all up, we could say we turn from metaphysical coherence to metaphysical incoherence. Oh, say that again? I think that the summary of the whole thing is we turn from metaphysical coherence. I think originism, I think what origin is saying, it makes sense, but it, it is so strange for us in the West. We're not used to thinking this way. But it coheres, it fits together, it holds together. 
metaphysical coherence, coherence to two metaphysical incoherence. Augustinianism doesn't hold together. It's going to fall. It's already falling apart. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense. It's an abhorrent view of God. It's an abhorrent view of salvation. You know, it's filled with dualisms. But other than that, it's wonderful. Paul, I'm wondering if you <laughs> might be able to um, describe the differences in what you see to be uh, the sort of the hermeneutical differences between how Origen and Augustine would, you know, maybe compare and contrast the two. This is kind of the odd question, and maybe that's why I only had three questions this week. Because if you had to locate the difference between Origen and Augustine in their treatment of Scripture, it's pretty difficult. In other words, it's not obvious that we've shifted up hermeneutics just taking their view of, of reading the Bible. So it's almost like uh, you can't explain this simply in terms of a biblical. I, th I think we have shifted up. You know, for Origen, when we talked about his rule of faith, that is synonymous with the gospel. That is synonymous with Jesus Christ. That is synonymous with his hermeneutic. That's there in Irenaeus. That was there in Ignatius. The rule of faith is Jesus, but I, I, I don't think we're talking that way anymore. And, and it's a subtle shift. And Matt, I would like you to run this down for us, because you this is question number three. And I think there is a shift. You know, where is the shift? How can we locate it? Sure, I'll, I'll go through my answer here. Um, Augustine's rule of faith seems to be creedal. We have, we have seen from the New Testament itself through Ignatius, Arrhenius, and Origen that Scripture and tradition served as one sacred deposit of the Word of God that was committed to the Church. Christ in Him crucified as preached by the Apostles was the interpretive key for reading the Scriptures, and the Scriptures were the means by which the Apostles preached Christ in Him crucified. seems that with Augustine, we are now approaching this deposit from a theological context that is more abstract and dogmatic as opposed to apocalyptic. We also find that added uh, to Augustine's more dogmatic deposit is the authority of the Roman Empire. And then as, as noted, you note in your article that you gave us to read as well, this, how this shakes out and uh, a change in what Christian liturgy, ethics, and theology all mean. One interesting way in which Augustine's rule of faith shakes out differently than that of Origen is their primary divisions of reality. Um, as we saw last weekend is on principles, the primary division of reality for Origen, as it was for Gregory of, Ale of Nyssa, um, is not between created versus uncreated, but between seen and transient, the economy, versus unseen and eternal, theology. The distinction between created and uncreated for origin is a secondary distinction that falls within this primary distinction of seen, transient, and unseen eternal. So rational beings as intellects are included by origin in the apostolic preaching in the latter category of seen and eternal with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, eventually at the end of the ages, summing up all things when God becomes all in all. For Augustine, however, the, the primary theological disti distinction between is between created and uncreated. Sin is thus attributed is an attribute Augustine places in human nature itself. And at the end of the ages, rational creatures are mostly condemned 
into separation from God, with the exception of a few elect. Matt, it, if you can run down and, and explain a little bit. In other words, I think we have we've shifted up metaphysics. Yeah, in the way they're reading. Can you can you run that down a little bit for us? Yeah. So and and I'm just I mean even if you just take the layout of uh, origins on first principles as Bear at least breaks it up for us. Right. So the domain division, you know, the first part of on first principles are his first principles, what we talked about last week, books one through three are his rule of faith as expanded out um, through reason, you know, utilizing the rule of faith itself to expand its own understanding. That's divided into two parts. It's divided into theology and it's divided into the economy. It's divided into the unseen and to the seen, to the um, transient and to the eternal. And so you start, for example, and so he works through the apostolic preaching and the church's preaching twice over. Once through a lens of the eternal or the unseen, and then once through the lens of the seen, the economy. And so you end up like, I mean, in, you end up like in, in with J. Louis Martin and his apo- uh, apostolic reading, you end up with a two-level drama going on in scripture and going on in the rule of faith to interpret scripture. We have uh, at, at, at one level, the kind of spiritual level, the unseen, the eternal level, on a continuum, we have God the Father, who, Augustus, who origin tells us, is, is unknown and unknowable, only knowable through the Son. We have the Son who origin explores uh, at the unseen level through the divine names. And that's how we learn that the Father is the Father and that the Father is Almighty because he's Almighty through the Son. And we have the Holy Spirit and we have rational creatures as well because they're intellects. And they're ultimately, at the end of all things, uh, we become you know, eternal with God. And then at the at level of the economy, you have the same, uh, the same division, the same categories working out down below here in creation in, in a temporal reality, where, again, you deal with instead of dealing with Jesus and his working with him through the divine names. Now we're working with him through the um, through the economy of the incarnation. And here's where origin gives you, for example, analogizing uh, uh, Jesus and the incarnation to iron fire. Both, both the iron now is, shares the properties of the fire and the fire now in the iron shares the properties of the iron. And then from there, he works out in the economy, rational creatures, free will, and are eventually wooing us over into through, through Christ and the incarnation uh, to become all in all with God. And so he gives you this two level two-level understanding of what's going on where we as rational creatures are part of a, of a, of a dance or a court that sits with God. Um, one way to think about it, and Bear points this out really well as well, is Psalm 82 talks about God presiding over the heavenly court. And that's kind of the image both liturgically and scripturally that, that origin is given. Uh, I think Augustine, at least is reading back through, you know, Modernism and Protestantism, as we do, you know, breaks that apart. And, and I think maybe an unfair reading of them is we lose that apocalyptic understanding, one. And so now we've, we've kind of broken that two-level drama down to one level. Um, and we've separated 
instead of separating out the seen and the unseen as the primary distinction, now creatures and God are the primary distinction. And so now you have, at the end of all things, instead of everything coming into one unified God being all in all, you have creatures mostly who are condemned uh, to eternal separation from God and God himself eternally separate. And that's the ultimate distinction that matters. Matt Welch suggested to you, Matt, uh, you should write this up and we'll publish it. Yeah, this would be an excellent blog it series. Would. I would, would read this. I, I would read this book, you know, if you can. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, yeah. it's like this is a definitely uh, just outstanding articulation. I think this is uh, you're just capturing. You're making me want to bring out, you know, dig through my. I've already packed up first principles, and I want to like go down to the, you know, the center where my pod's being held down in Indianapolis, and get in there and find the box and pull the first principles back out and defeat it. <laughs> oh, they're gonna lose all that when they lose that pod. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have I might have missed it, but I want to restate a question: How is it if the distinction between uh, the creator and creation, if that's a dualism, what's the difference between that and the seen and the unseen or the transient and the intransient being? How is that not a dualism? Because the, I think, and Paul may need to jump in to correct me, but I think it's not a dualism because ultimately they end in unity. And they end in unity because the economy, the, the, the scene is not static, but ultimately it's moving through a life of taking up the cross and ultimately through uh, letting go of everything through our deaths and relying solely on God at that point is ultimately our transition from uh, the seen to the unseen, from, from the physical body, as Paul says, to the spiritual body. It's that transition that the economy eventually merges into and unifies with the unseen. Hmm. Yeah, well, there, there is no, in other words, the cr creature-creator duality just leaves you with, but what Origen is describing, I think what the Apostle Paul is describing, is that we are continually, I mean, that's just the reality of who we are. We're continually participating in the unseen. Mm -hmm. You know, in Apocatastasis, I think there is the idea that we're continually participating in who God <coughs> is. That, that's not simply the grace of Christ, but that's just the, the sense of the, the grace of, of who we are mm. that is completed in Christ. I was just reading um, St. Porphyrios. He has a wonderful little book called Wounded by Love. And mm. the first half of it is biographical. The second half of it, he starts getting into theology. And he's a real simple, you know, the, biograf the biograf biographical part, excuse me, is very sort of simple. And you wouldn't think that he would come out guns blazing in the second part, but he starts on the first page by talking about how um, the church is uncreated. Um, and I was like, whoa, okay. And then, you know, he says, why is that? And he says, well, because the, the church has always existed in the, in the mind of the omniscient God that, uh, you know, that, that in, you know, in ages past and in ages future, that God, that the church uh, is uncreated in the sense that it's always been, uh, you know, uh, with God, <laughs> what may appear to be sort of like, you know, this is what Hart calls a provisional dualism. So whether we like that language or not, but it's kind of like the situation that we find ourselves in, right? It's like the seen and the unseen. 
which I thought that was just such a great synopsis and a, and a great reminder of how he of how Origin splits that splits that up um, in first principles. But yeah, I mean, he goes to great lengths to say that you know um, the people that that came into contact with Jesus they couldn't see that he was God in his humanity. You know, so that in other words, for Origin, I think that. Um, that problem between that's always the problem of philosophy, whether it's the eternal, the temporal, the infinite, the finite spirit, flesh, creator, creation is brought together in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that our participation, even in this class, I mean, this is an uncreated participation in what St. Porphyrios calls the energies of God. We need to be thinking about what our topic is for a final presentation. And this, maybe until now, I'm doubting, this was mine. I wanted to talk about dualism. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to trace that and, and really look through our whole hermeneutic principle and consider Augustine and even, you know, whatever modern uh, sources we can get into to this whole issue of dualism and how it is the lie and how maybe in this case, how origin is someone we need to go back to and recognize what essentially is there. So I, I'm in your debt, and I won't scrap my my thesis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but even though you said it so well, I'm going to go back, and this is what I want to do: is is help, you know, at least trace my own perspective on the hermeneutic, the the hypothesis, the original, you know, apostolic preaching as a lens and how it undoes the dualism all through our historical context and the reflection on, I guess it's a very perennial push to split things up into dualities. I mean, the ultimate dualism is God and man, right? I mean, I can't think of, I can't think of a harder, more hard and fast dualism than God and man. And that's precisely what's being resolved, you know, at least theologically, you know, at the very least in, in Jesus Christ, you know, but I think that that is kind of the, that is, that is like the kind of like the task of philosophy, right? In many ways, is it's always been the problem of, you know, matter and mind or how you can just do it in a million different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I mean, I think that Paul should just extend this class and just so that way he can get through all of his, you know, lectures <laughs> that each person present except for me. Oh, he will. Um, He'll extend it to the whatever the next one is. It's going to be <laughs> continuing. Yeah. <laughs> Or we can just, just keep the class, you know, just in per, you know, in perpetuity. You know what I mean? Just, just keep the class, yeah, yeah. Every, you know, every Tuesday, and just we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it eventually. You know, I, I think I'll lose you all the week of Thanksgiving, which is the next week, except for Rob, because you Australians don't care about American <laughs> Thanksgiving. Things uh, like genocide and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, that's when we <laughs> celebrate. Our, yeah. Uh, I think that actually, as I said to Matt, uh, I think your Matt S, your answers were better than my questions. And so I think our discussion actually took us places that, that uh, went beyond the uh, questions. Tonight. So. What can we look forward to in the uh, next week? What's the topic? We're going Maximus. Our, Maximus the Confessor. Oh, wow. Okay. It's a biggie. So Game on. Yeah, this is the biggie. And, uh, you know, this week was kind of negative, but I didn't know how. I mean, we got to do, we got to do Augustine. But I think as much, then I think Maximus is kind of the culmination of, of where we're headed.
I'm not endorsing this or uh, I'm not pre-endorsing it because uh, some of you may want to jump off this train into perdition. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. Does Maximus take um, Origins track or is he more on Augustine's? He's, uh, I believe, in, is taking Origins track. Although he's, uh, in many ways, providing a needed uh, lifting or correction even uh, to some of Origins. Okay. Matt will explain everything to us next week. <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll count on that. <laughs> I I didn't actually give you much reading on Maximus, did I? If you will look up Jordan Wood's dissertation on Maximus the Confessor, I think Jordan Wood, and of course this is the big disagreement between David Bentley Hart and Jordan Wood, but but no matter, I think Jordan Wood gives us an excellent explanation. Uh, if you want to look up his dissertation, I can specify what parts of it. But. The book may be out. I don't know. It's coming out soon, if not. It, it, it's out. It just it came out a little while ago, I think. And Maybe I assume, little, is, the book, is the book his dissertation? Is that? It, uh, it's worked over. I'm not sure if it's changed or not. I, I just, it's sitting on my bookshelf. Oh, there you go, Matt. We'll rely <laughs> on you. Oh. Hasn't been touched, but it's there. Yeah. I look forward to figuring out, can you explain to us what the, um, what the debate between Jordan Wood, Daniel Jordan Wood and, and, and uh, David Bentley Hart is? I've, I've read a couple of things on it. And I still have no, I don't think I can track it very well. I think we can, and uh, let, let's go over it next week. And Matt W. will be prepared uh, to give us the full rundown. <laughs> on Hart's objections to Wood's reading. Uh, in short, this is kind of why I, I, I'm, I'm up in the air a little bit about this. But obviously, I don't have the expertise to tell you what Maximus said. But I think Jordan Daniel Wood does. In other words, I don't know anybody that's read him more closely. The question is, I think, not is he right about Maximus. I think the question is, is Maximus correct? And I think what David Bentley Hart is, he's objecting to the reading, but I'm not seeing that, I'll be honest. But Matt Matt Welch will run that down for us. Next. Maybe we can get Jordan to come on and talk to us. We, I, I would look forward to that, yeah. Paul, yeah. we look forward to you having a definite opinion on Maximus by next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll have to... I have to do some heavy thinking. <laughs> All oh, right. Man. Appreciate talk. you guys. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Bye. everyone. Bye-bye. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.